Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. First and foremost, your support means we can keep making the show, especially as uh, live shows are few and far between. Still, patreon.com slash bookshambles where you can go to subscribe and get lots of extra goodies for becoming a Patreon supporter as well. We do, however, have three live shows coming up this weekend outdoors at the Latitude Festival. Helen Chersky will be chairing a Cosmic Shambles takeover of the Listening Post at Latitude, which is a big outdoor tent at the festival. She'll be chairing a climate change panel with Yadvinda Mali and Tamsin Edwards, then a mental health panel with Dean Burnett and Susie Gage, and then finally a kind of science book shambles about the secret body with Dan Davis. That's all on Sunday at Latitude. Now I will hand you over to Robin for the intro to this episode. A little bit shorter episode this week for a few technical reasons and uh, last minute Josie wasn't able to join us as well. So it's a little bit shorter episode this week, but I'm sure you will agree a fascinating conversation all the same. Here's Robin. Hello, welcome to uh, Book Shambles. This is part of our Science Book Shambles series, which is still Book Shambles, really, uh, though Josie's not here at the moment. And uh, today's book is, I, I always find it, anyone who's heard me do shows before, where I talk to someone who is uh, uh, looking at the mind and the brain, it gets so tangential because to me, it, there is no way of having a brief discussion about the human mind and the human brain and many other species' brains as well. And in fact, if you heard, I think one of the times, I think the four times that we've done on the infinite monkey cage subject specifically about the human brain we used to get to question one and then fail to get any further i think in the last few one with uh, i think it was david eagleman and uh, and and gina rippon uh we didn't even get to question one so that's that but and today though i think we did get to question one we might have even got to question five um i talked to uh, a man with a new book carl deseroth who has a book called connections a story of human feeling uh and uh he is uh, a psychiatrist who also works in optogenetics and i'll also mention that uh he was just sat in his garden very relaxed uh so the sound quality is pretty good i think generally there's there's an occasional little bit but every now and again you will hear wind chimes and you will hear bird song uh see if you can work out which particular bird it was near stanford uh that was making that noise uh, but here is carl desroth as i talk to him in his back garden about connections a story of human feeling <laughs> Well, I, I start off just by asking you about, in terms of, I interviewed a lot of neuroscientists a, a while ago when I was trying to write a short chapter about the brain, which it turns yeah. out, of course, is utterly impossible. And one of the things that every neuroscientist I spoke to said, with the exception of one, was that their first major unsettling revelation when they were uh, in lectures was realising how we're on such a knife edge in terms of with our brain. And I just wonder how you feel about that. Well, you, you, you've dealt with so many people who, through sometimes small and sometimes major incidents and sometimes biology, things are not as they should be. Well, as a, as a psychiatrist, I can say this, that knife edge is, is something that we see all the time. It's, it shows up in the lives of our patients and it shows up in people who haven't yet reached the clinical level of, of distress. We are... Uh, uh, very sensitive and we do amazing things with our brains and that comes with uh, with a trade-off we're poised uh, close to dysfunction in 
order to allow us to function. And this uh, allows us to do amazing things. If you think about the complexity of the social interaction, the immense data streams that are coming in, all the complexities of sound and language, coupled with all the uh, complexities of body movement and eye contact, and then interpreting that and having that change millisecond by millisecond, second by second, as your model of the other person changes, uh, forget about two or three or more people, a, a team, a, a room full of people. This is a, a potentially one of the most uh, intensive, data intensive, information intensive tasks in biology. And to do that, our brains have to do uh, astonishing things. And that may put them in a, a position where they're, they're close to breakdown as well. And we can see this happen and people who uh, uh, suffer from disorders on the social behavior spectrum. There are many examples of this, but but you're absolutely right that this uh, understanding what the brain is trying to do, understanding the constraints it's operating under, and then having at the same time an understanding of, of the clinical syndromes that, that result is, I think, very important for us to understand ourselves. Well, it's interesting because of the behavior of your brain uh, changed the path of the career that you were going to go into, didn't it? Well, it is, uh, and that, you talk about uh, knife edges and and single moments that are transformative. Uh, that experience is something I talk about a little bit in the book. I was, uh, I, I'd always been interested in the brain. Uh, no, that wasn't new. As a even as a child, I I was curious about how emotions arise in the brain, how they can be stirred by words. Uh, and I wanted to study the brain and the human brain, and I thought neurosurgery would be the way to do that because then you would have access to the human brain. Um, and so in medical school, I, I was governing my whole uh, path toward neurosurgery. I did that as my first clinical rotation in neurosurgery. I loved it. I loved the intensity and the precision and the, the drama of the neurosurgery operating room. But then I had to do a required uh, psychiatry rotation uh, in order to graduate, as everybody does. And I was uh, reluctant, but I uh, had to do it. And uh, uh, the first day, my entire life changed. I had a experience with a, a patient who had schizoaffective disorder. This is a, a very uh, uh, debilitating condition that mixes up uh, mania and depression and psychosis all, all together, not understood at all. Very, very uh, crushing and, and uh, debilitating. And a patient burst into the room and, and began to, to, to scream at me in a very complex uh, uh, way. The words were new. He was inventing words as he was speaking. His reality was so clearly different from my own, although he was physically intact. He had a no, no, no flaw in his body. And it was in that single moment that I, I could see my whole life transform and, and realizing that this was... This was something I had to understand, both both because of the level of suffering, the mysterious suffering, unaddressed uh, pain, uh, and also because of how fundamentally interesting this was, that another human being could have a reality so different than my own. See, that's, that, that difference in our realities, I mean, you also talk in the book about your empathy and that, that you did feel there were, there were points when you were dealing with people who you knew, especially the, the story of a, of, of a child who 
from very early on you realize the outcome of this barely beyond toddler is and and that to me is a fascinating thing i was i was talking to uh um a uh, a neurosurgeon the other day uh, about the fact that one of the things that's always fascinated him is how conscious we all are that we often talk about the different level of consciousness in different species but actually the different forms of consciousness that we within this species might have. And that to me is there's different things that might lead to levels of hypervigilance that can interfere with this uh, empathy, which can be, because I think there definitely is a point where you go, empathy is this great thing that human beings have, but there is a Goldilocks zone of empathy. There is a level of empathy where you go, this is just slowing down everything and bringing soundness and not at the same time creating enough you know constructive so, so that to me is a very interesting and as you have seen so many different minds but even you know the mind that is not diagnosed as disturbed we are all within ourselves in that inside world d- different levels fascinating mm-hmm. yes this is and and it's something empathy is so important we need empathy it's it's what keeps us together as a species as a human family but it has to be managed particularly in these crisis uh, professions uh, in, in medicine and in, in, in uh, armed conflict and uh, all kinds of emergency services. Uh, you can't feel deeply, fully everything all the time or you couldn't get, get through your day. And so this is one thing that I talk about a, a little bit uh, in that chapter you mentioned in the book of how, how one can learn to, to uh, still feel as you need to in, in the moment to connect with the patient, with the family, to understand what they're feeling only then can you can you make the right choices but but you can't go all in all the time on that and, and learning how to regulate that is a key skill that's never taught it's, it's never uh there's no formal uh, education in that but um and that's so a single person certainly needs to to, to uh, uh meter out the the, the level of, of feeling within which is a very interesting uh, uh process then of course people you know, have individual variation as well in their uh, natural levels of empathy. And this can go all the way to the extremes of of pathology with uh, what we call antisocial personality disorder, which is effectively the the criminal state uh, in in many people where there's effectively no empathy at all. And this leads to, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, uh, disturbing uh, actions. And and so there's this... uh, Exactly as you say, this is a, a quantity. The level of empathy is something that varies from person to person and moment to moment within an individual. I mean, let's move on to you know, one of the main subjects of, of this book, which is we are in the 21st century. There's this fascinating point where psychiatry and the technology of neuroscience, where we're starting to see a lot of things that were could have been a s- separate disciplines about the brain and the mind are beginning to converge. And you in particular talk about optogenetics. So can you tell me, for those who don't know, what is optogenetics? How is that changing our understanding? Yeah. So optogenetics is, is exactly, as you say, it's one of those things that's allowed us to turn the corner over the past 15 years. Optogenetics has flipped around what we normally uh, uh, consider uh, light to be useful for. We think about light as a way to collect information from a system. When we look at something, the light is coming into us. With optogenetics, we flip that around. We deliver light into something to control it, to actually turn the activity of individual cells or kinds of cells on or off. This could be as an animal is carrying out complex behaviors, uh, perhaps a, a mouse or a rat uh, carrying out uh, very fundamentally interesting uh, behaviors that we share, uh, nurturing, 
caring for, for offspring, uh, aggression, or simple things, hunger, thirst, all these things now can be turned up or down with light, uh, moment by moment, uh, by an experimenter, by playing in activity of individual kinds of cells in the brain. Now, how does this work? This is optogenetics. This started uh, in 2004. What I did in 2004 was take a gene from algae. Algae, a particular kind of single-celled green algae, has a particular gene that makes a particular protein that turns light into electricity. It's a single protein that sits in the surface of cells. It receives a photon, and it opens up a little pore, a little hole in the membrane of the cell that lets charged particles, ions, flow across the surface. Now, the algae does this for its own reasons, but that's very useful uh, for neuroscience because this flow of ions is the language of communication within a neuron. It, those ions turn a neuron on or off. And so by delivering this gene to particular cells, you've conferred now onto those cells, maybe neurons in the brain of an animal, a new kind of language. You can now control them with light by delivering light, maybe through a fiber optic, maybe through a hologram. You can turn individual cells that now have this gene setting them apart from all the other cells in the brain, you can now turn them on or off with precision. So this is optogenetics. It brought causality. It brought precise timing. And it brought uh, keeping things in the right context as you achieve this uh, ultimate cellular level of precision of control. And that's allowed us to understand which cells, which connections in the brain actually cause certain behaviors or cognitions or sensations. So you, I, I know some of the early work was uh, looking at kind of mice and circadian rhythms and things like that. But when we get to, for instance, how it's changed the way that you are able to understand some of the people that come to visit you, some of the people who are in states that would be considered to be disturbed, how does that pragmatically affect what you, what you are able to see and what you're able to understand now? This, this uh, back and forth between the clinic and the lab has been really astonishing. And optogenetics has helped drive what we do in the clinic. It's helped drive understanding. And in turn, the clinic has helped guide the laboratory research. A good example of that is our studies of uh, uh, valence, what we call the positive or negative quality to a particular uh, situation. You feel good or you feel bad. So there's a sign or a valence to, to a particular situation. You can, you might think that's a pretty fundamental thing. Good things are good, bad things are bad, and that's how they always are. Well, it turns out those are actually quite flexible quantities in the brain and they can be instantaneously altered, turned on or off by particular cells with particular connections. And this is very relevant to conditions like depression where people no longer get joy or pleasure from things that were normally extraordinarily positive for them. Their greatest joys, their greatest hobbies, rewards, pleasures now uh, bring no joy at all. In fact, even neutral objects can be negative, can have a negative sign to them. They can just see a piece of paper on the floor, as one of my patients told me. When he's depressed, he can just see a piece of paper and feel bad about that piece of paper, even though it had no other uh, valence to it. And, and that's the level of crushing negativity that can come with a major depressive disorder. And we now understand this, optogenetics has helped us understand this because we can identify the cells that can confer exactly that sort of sign change or valence change. We can make a mouse really, really not like a particular harmless room in a multi-roomed uh, apparatus, a particularly neutral place that it didn't care whether it was in or not. 
with optogenetic control of just the right cells at the right time, we can make it avoid that room as if it's the worst place on earth. Conversely, we can make it try to get to that room as if it's the best place on earth by turning on or off individual kinds of cells within the brain. So what this has taught us is that valence or sign, it's, it's, a, it's assigned by particular cells and cell types. Optogenetics has taught us that, and that helps us understand at a deeper level these otherwise frustrating even you know infuriating aspects of depression why you know this person's life is is fine why why are they so negative why are they uh you know why, why can't they see the the joy around them and the opportunities well they can't they, they really can't in the same sense that the mouse can't when a particular just a few cells with a few uh, little uh, blips of activity have been altered it's a fundamental biological thing and that level of understanding I think is very important for for all of us and if we think about our friends our families our, our, our communities do you find this disturbs people because even people who wouldn't necessarily class themselves as religious often find that idea that it is you know well basically the materialist idea you are your brain this is you know there is not something magic there is not a ghost in, in, in the machine and and it seems that optogenetics moves us even further in terms of giving us harder and harder evidence to say this is you this is where it happens well i it's it's both uh you know it moves us along that direction but it also frames what i think are even more, more wonderful and mysterious questions that maybe are beyond the reach of science at least how we think of science today so first of all it's certainly true that optogenetics helped us frame this issue very clearly that yes absolutely there are particular cells a few blips of activity and a few precise cells can fundamentally change choices cognitions perceptions actions all of this you, you can't deny that anymore as a result of of, of of what we've been able to do with optogenetics it's, it's unequivocal we can play in a few blips of activity to a few cells and fundamentally change the whole priority motivation structure uh, of, of of an animal uh, a mammal you know like us with much of the same brain structures uh, and so on now uh, you might say well this is uh, does this take away some spark of magic of, of humanity and I say no uh, I, it's helped us understand ourselves and it's actually even framed and I get to this in the epilogue of the book it's even clarified some even deeper uh, mysteries and I maybe I won't reveal too much but I think one thing uh, that you'll find out as you as you get to the epilogue uh, is that there is a extraordinarily deep and wonderful mystery that that this level of precision of control has framed, which is the nature of our subjective sense. So our our inner feelings that has no readout, it has no external measurable. Our subjective internal sense, where that comes from. Is it just the interaction of the cells or is it something else? Optogenetics has helped frame the mystery of the subjective sense, uh, I, I believe, with extraordinary uh, clarity. And that that is a deep mystery, unsolved and maybe not solvable in the ways that we currently think uh, about science. See, that's what I find I, I think is one of the most exciting things and one of the most useful things in a lot of 21st century neuroscience is showing that the idea that you are able to objectively view the world 
to me seems to be nonsensical you can bring in a, uh, various systems and you can use philosophies etc and you can use experiments and you can refine it and you can definitely get a better view of the world but it, it, as long as we accept that we are a subjective viewer of of the world and it can just loosen our grip on kind of you know on on, on dogmas and bigotries it's extraordinarily important to acknowledge that subjectivity that's where progress uh, comes from uh, i couldn't agree more and again, it, it, this, uh, it, it takes nothing away from science, which is a wonderful thing. And we absolutely need to push science as far as it can go and help it to explain everything that it, it can explain. Let's give it its best shot. Science is humanity's current you know, best guess. Uh, you know, it has its flaws, it has its limitations, but it's our, our collective uh, best, best effort at understanding the world. We can push that as, as far as it can go and, and not hesitate. Uh, at the same time, uh, we all have to acknowledge uh, and should acknowledge and and should should take uh, you know some some positive uh, uh, valence in in acknowledging uh, that our, our subjectivity, our, our distortions, and our limitations. Yeah, I think the biggest argument I've ever had uh, with a particle physicist was over the line: "We cannot observe nature from outside of nature." We had a two-hour stand-up round. We worked together a lot. It's the only big row we've ever had. Uh, and I'm, I'm still not entirely sure where we got with that. Um, I, I would like to just ask about your influences as well, because obviously I mean, before we started recording, I mentioned Oliver Sacks. And I think the moment that you, you know, he, he is this figure that, 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 that is a, a, a giant in, in this area. And, and, you know, and I found your book fascinating in terms of the way that you bring yourself into the stories, bring your own reactions, your own understandings, not merely as a psychiatrist, but your understandings from the way it affected you as a human being when you may well have left that patient. And I just wondered, who, who are the people that drew you into your own fascination with this? Well, uh, well, thank you for, for saying that. It's interesting, uh, as much as I, uh, you know, I, I respect uh, and deeply admire the, the efforts of, of people like Oliver Sacks who have helped brought these, these questions of, uh, that are so interesting in, in clinical medicine and brought them to, the, to be the common you know, heritage of, of, of all of us. Uh, at, the, at the same time, it's interesting, my own uh, guide stars and inspirations have been uh, more on, the, on the, the, the poetry and literature side. Those are the things that have most made me uh, uh, think, that have made me think most deeply about the nature of, of feeling and emotions in the brain and you know there are poets from from you know classical uh you know uh you know um, gerard manley hopkins for example a, a, a poet whose use of words uh in innovative ways that stirred feeling to me was stunning and still is is stunning uh uh and then going all the way to to the uh modern era uh you know many of these uh, uh poets and uh, for example, are, are cited in the book, the work of uh, Derek Walcott and, and, and Toni Morrison and others. These are people who's, who stir emotions so astonishing, astonishingly with uh, words that, in ways that go beyond meaning. And for me, that was the biggest inspiration. That brought me into neuroscience. That still guides me to this day when I think about uh, the, uh, the nature of, of the emotions that uplift us or that bring us down and how easily and precisely they can be accessed uh with 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 words with symbols so uh it's, a, it's an odd answer but in some ways my inspirations have have come from from poetry and literature even more than science see i don't, I don't think that's i think that's a really because until very recently we had so few tools 
if any, to really investigate our minds. And it does feel, I mean, you know, that, that great partnership of William James and Henry James, basically, you know, the two ways yeah. that they respond. And, and so I think that's, have you ever read uh, um, a, a, a British uh, neuropsychiatrist, uh, Paul Brooks? I have not, actually. Really recommend he 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 wrote a book which the starting point was was actually the the, the loss of his wife called uh, uh, the dark of the night the bright of the stars, yeah, and every I now and again that. he goes you, you get used to the fact that you're reading nonfiction and about you know some of his patients something and then suddenly you go oh hang on now he's gone into a story and so it breaks it up in quite an interesting way. Um, so this is uh, the, my final question for you is really how how has this work changed you because i can't see it i don't just mean looking but as you get this understanding do you see yourself in well sorry i'm asking a very rambly way but yeah how does it how has it changed the way you see yourself well you know i i've changed so much over over time you know from that first moment when i turned from a neurosurgeon to be into a psychiatrist to be i i don't think of myself as a you know as a easily radically upended person i have i have my my guide stars that that are steady and strong uh but but it's but to, to see my whole perception of my my life and my future be upended in that moment was an interesting thing it doesn't happen that often uh but what it, what i've seen more since then is is growth in a in appreciation for the complexities the uh the, the mysteries realizing that science will uh, i believe take us where we need to go but I would say humility, uh, humility and in, in understanding how far we have to go. Um, at the same time, that that that's valuable. Uh, it doesn't temper the excitement of the moment. Uh, it only heightens it. The, the, this excitement uh, that we feel uh, about the new uh, scientific advances we can make, the hope that we uh, now see for these patients that have been so stigmatized and, and sidelined and, and marginalized and misunderstood. Even just understanding uh, just that, without without even getting to the idea of, of, of treatments yet, understanding in psychiatry brings an enormous amount of hope. And and when we when we publish papers on anxiety or autism or or uh, these these symptoms of depression that are are so poorly understood and and hard for family and friends to understand, I get emails from people around the world just just uh, thanking our our team for for the for bringing hope for bringing a hope for understanding that alone is, is 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 something and and for me that's that's maybe how i've uh evolved most is is realizing that that hope is very important and uh without getting to to therapies or solving everything helping us understand each other uh is is a worthy goal in itself yeah, I think that's it. I still think that's the big, you know, is there another species that has such a disparity between what it might be projecting and what is going on inside? And, you know, when you st very often it is through reading the stories of others that those stories that you didn't dare share, uh, suddenly you go, and, you know, and I see that in stand up comedy a lot. And, and, and a lot of, I, I was also fascinated by when you talked about us being the only species that cries in, in that chapter, which is it has a very disturbing story at, at, at the start of it and a tragic story, reminded me of a beautiful moment. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Jane Goodall, when she was visiting chimpanzees that were being used for vivisection in the hope of campaigning to change uh, and stop the use of vivisection, there's one where she's looking at a chimpanzee and she starts to cry and the chimpanzee just puts its finger out the cage and just get, touches her cheek and wipes the tear and it's a really fascinating as we know with a lot of her work interspecies communication but that tear thing was just yeah yeah 
Well, we, 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 uh, our, our inner depths are revealed sometimes in, in ways that matter a lot. And, and what I hope to do is help us reveal even more of them. So we, we, uh, we can be like that, you know, go beyond that, that, that moment of the, of the chimp and, and Jane Goodall and, and get a richer, richer, deeper understanding of each other. That's, that's a hope, uh, you know, we have a long way to go, but I think, you know, now, now is the time in, in human history where we can look back and say, this is, this is the time when uh, perhaps uh, things started to change when we first really uh, understood that the biological nature began to understand the biological nature of our, our feelings, our complexities, and, and use that to understand each other better and relate to each other better. Brilliant. That's fantastic. So Carl's book Connections should be out now, probably. It's the 15th of June it comes out. If this goes out a couple of days before that, it's probably available in bookshops anyway. But I would highly recommend it. I think it's a it's, it's a it's a very interesting book and it is like so many books about the human mind. It gives you so many different perspectives. It allows you to go into so many different people's skulls and explore their worlds. Um, and uh, don't forget, by the way, if you don't support us via Patreon, it would be fantastic if you do. It's basically how we've kept going for the last year. Uh, generally, we, you can either support us uh the patreon that uh, is book shambles uh which will give you extra long episodes of uh book shambles or you can support us via cosmic shambles patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and that gives you loads of the other shows we do you just get book shambles at the normal length but there's loads of other stuff we do including these series uh, and uncanny hour with people like Stuart lee and mark gatis and linda merrick and toya wilcox and also the tips for existence weekly series where i talk to people like tim minchin and brian green and neil gay and Nicole Stott and Francesca Stavrokopoulou and Katie Brand and many others. Anyway, thank you if you can support us. If not, I hope just to keep enjoying what we do. Thanks to our producer Trent Burton. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.